Well, good morning and happy Easter. Welcome to our fourth of six weekend services, and we're, we're just so thankful that you're here. If you're our guest for the first time, I'd like to ask for a, a personal favor, if you don't mind. When you came in, you got a talk to us card, or, or even if you didn't, there's one in, in probably one of the seats in front of you. It, it won't be like this, it'll be white. But if you're our guest for the first time, please come to guest services. There's one right out there in the middle in the front, and there's also a little one back in the back by the coffee shop. And we have a gift for you. It's a little gift bag, and it'll have a DVD of one of the talks that I gave that kind of gives a little bit of the history of the church, and then also there's some information. And then I think there's chocolate candy in there, some kind of candy. We just want you to know how sweet it is that you would take part of your Easter weekend and spend it with us. So please come and receive that. No, no strings attached. We just want to uh, say thank you for being here today. I want to start today in this Easter service by asking you a question. And that question is, uh, what would be the most important fact in your life? If you had a piece of paper and a pen or if you had your iPad, uh, and I ask you, what's the most important fact to you, the most practical, salient fact to your life on this day, what would it be? I think for a lot of us, it would be something like this. I have my health. And the reason I say that is so many times I hear is the bottom line thing. You know, someone loses his job or maybe a marriage falls apart, and that person will say, well, at least I have my health. So I, I feel that for many of us, if you are healthy today, and you, you are blessed, you are gifted if you have your health today, if you feel good today, then that's a very important fact to you. So it could be that that's the most important fact in your life, you say, I have my health. And especially if you've been through a season when you didn't have your health, that can be a very important fact to you. Or it could be that you would say, Mark, the most important fact in, in my life is that the person I love loves me. And, uh, and I can tell you this, in our world today, if you can find somebody in this world who will love you, I mean love you not the way we see the word love defined in entertainment and music, but I'm talking about real love, the kind of self-sacrificial love that the real thing is made out of. If the person you love loves you, that's a very big fact. So it could be that you would just say, Mark, that's the biggest fact in my life, the person I love loves me. Or in this economy, it could be I have a good job, I have a good career, and uh, I like what I do, and I, I find fulfillment out of it. So the most important fact of my life is that I have a great career. I don't know what you would put in there, but my guess is that each of us could come to a place, if we really pushed ourselves, we could come to a place in which we would say the most important fact of my existence on April 8, 2012, is this. I want to make a case for something on this Easter. I want to make a case for the idea that the most important fact in my life, in your life, is that Jesus Christ walked out of his grave under his own power. Now, I know, I know right up front in this age in which we're so detached from Bible days, that could seem like a tall order. And it may be that when you walk out of here today, you, you'll, you'll have two words for me. Nice try. And it could be that you'll walk out and you'll say, 
You know, Mark, I, I come from a religious perspective, and the idea that Jesus rose from the grave, it's part of my religious repertoire. I sort of believe it happened. Paul was taken a few years ago. 84% of American people believe that Jesus arose in some fashion. So it could be that you're among the group that would say, well, it is, it is part of my religion to believe that, but it's not something I think about very often. Or it could be that you come from a secularist or non-theist perspective or a skeptical perspective in which you say, I don't think anything like that happened. I think there are a lot of people who thought it happened. But you know, Mark, I'm okay with Easter because after all, it's got some cultural benefit. Families get together, kids have Easter eggs. It's kind of fun. You know, not at New Spring, but you know, you know people go to church and show off their new clothes and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so I think it's probably all right. You know, I don't think there's any harm done in it too much. Well, you know, guys, let me tell you. I grew up, and again, if you're a New Springer, you're accustomed to me saying that I hate religion, and I do. Because to me, when I read the Bible, it's not about jumping through hoops to be accepted. It is about God's invitation. This book is God's invitation to you to have a relationship with him. That's a whole different thing than religion. And when I go to church and I listen to a minister talk, and how many times have I been to a church on Easter and listened to a minister talk, and he he waxed eloquent and, and spoke in flower, flowery language. I just believe if there's ever a, a place for straight talk, it's here. I think, I think, you know what? I think if you're here today and you come from a skeptical vantage point, I think your attitude toward me ought to be, show me what you got, Buster. Honestly, because that's how I am. I want to say, do you have something? Do you have a message? Do you have something practical? Do you have something that's real? And, and so I, th- I think that's a fair question. If you came today from a skeptical point of view, you're, you're, you're a soul brother of mine, you're a soul sister. I love it. And I think if I, can't, if I can't bring it today, if I don't have something to say, then I think you have every reason to walk away and say, that was a nice, it was, it was a nice cultural experiment. So let's start today by asking three questions in this little 25, 30-minute talk that I want to bring to you for the next few moments. I want to start by asking three questions. I want to ask, is it all that important? Did it happen? And what does it mean to me on April 8, 2012? What does it mean to me personally? Well, let's start with that first question. doesn't matter because every once in a while someone will ask, and from a friendly perspective, isn't it okay, isn't it enough to believe that Jesus died, that Jesus was a good man, lived an extraordinary life, and died for sins? There are people who will say, I do believe in a historical Jesus. I believe he was a great teacher. And there will be people who ask me, isn't it enough to believe that Jesus lived a great life, taught some wonderful things, such as he did in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he died for our sins and went to the grave, and then like everybody else, do I need to believe in the resurrection? Is it really all that important? Is, Is it something that's, it's some kind of deal breaker in our relationship with God? Do I need to believe in the resurrection? Now guys, here's the thing that you and I need to understand about God and the Bible. The Bible leaves itself zero wiggle room on that issue. One thing I've learned about studying world religions is religions have a way of leaving themselves wiggle room, but not the Bible. The Bible backs itself into a corner on this issue of the resurrection and gives itself absolutely, the Christian faith gives itself absolutely zero wiggle room on this idea that Jesus rose from the grave. Listen to the integrity of the Bible as it talks about itself if this one thing didn't happen. Read with me. Face it. If there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. 
And everything you've staked your life on, considering you might be a Christ follower, everything you've staked your life on, smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we, that's ministers, will be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you verifying that God raised up Christ, if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark, as lost as ever. A lot of translations say you're still in your sins. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection, because they're already in their graves. In other words, they don't have time to change their worldview. They don't have time to switch religions. Isn't it interesting that the Bible's being that honest about it, saying if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, everything that you've heard is smoke and mirrors, and how really bad it is for people who died believing because they can't change. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. How about that for straight talk? That's the Bible. I mean, putting that in 21st century language, that would be like if all you get from Mark is a few inspirational thoughts, this is pretty sorry business here, this new spring church thing. So let's just go from that. Is, is, is it important? And the Bible says absolutely. In fact, here's what the Bible is saying. If you want to sum up the text that we just read in 1 Corinthians, the Bible is saying if Jesus Christ did not rise from the grave, take this book and throw it in the trash because it has absolutely zero benefit. You say, Mark, all the nice things in there, the stories of Jesus and you know all this. The Bible is saying if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, throw it in the trash. Game set, match. Now that takes us to a place that we have to go now. We have to ask ourselves the question, did it happen? Because in the Bible, there are many miraculous statements, things that happen that contravene norms. And so, uh, no, no miracle, nothing in the supernatural realm has ever been so challenged as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is obvious because, as the Bible has stated, if he didn't rise from the grave, it's like, it's like dominoes falling. It, it's nothing matters. So skeptics through the years have done their best to make proofs, to offer explanations, because after all, it is very difficult. You have the resurrection of Jesus, and immediately following, you have this explosive you have this explosive movement that changed the world, even rocked the most powerful regime in the world, Rome. No other religion had done that. I don't think Christ following is a religion, but no other movement had done that. Let's just say that. So those who would question the resurrection of Jesus, they have a problem on their hands. Something was claimed to happen, and almost instantly there was this explosive movement that changed the world. So then, in order to question Jesus' resurrection from the dead, there had to be explanations given for how it happened. So let me just kind of go, I'm an old debater, and, and I learned in high school and college to debate both sides of an issue, and so I'm going to do my best to kind of do that, and you, you help me with this, please. Let, let's, let's see what, what proofs, what historical proofs, if we, were to, if we were to examine the resurrection of Jesus within the context of historical proofs, let's see what we have. Well, first of all, and this is kind of a slow pitch, we'll start in kind of an easy place. Jesus is the only person who ever claimed to rise from the grave, and the Christian, if you'll allow me to use that, the Christian faith is the only movement considered religious that would ever make the claim that its founder rose from the grave. I mean, Jesus did say, I will rise from the grave, like Babe Ruth pointing to left field, saying he's going to hit the ball out of the park on the left side. I mean, Jesus said, I will die, and then I will rise again. Nobody else ever said that. And then it is the message of Christ's followers that, yes, indeed, he did rise from the grave. Well, as I said, no other movement in history has ever made such an audacious claim. Why? Because it's such a difficult thing to pull off. 
Graves have a stubborn way of staying full. And dead people have a very difficult time reappearing. That is why world movements can take you to the birthplace of its founder. They can take you to the place of his burial or her burial. But no one else would dare offer such an audacious claim that their leader rose from the grave. Let's set that aside. And let's talk about this. There are witnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible says he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, I also saw it. And it's really interesting what Paul is saying here because contemporaneous notes and contemporaneous facts are very important. They will actually stand up in a court of law. What Paul is saying is, look, he was seen by 500 people at one time, and he, he, he lists individuals and small groups who saw Jesus, but he said he was seen by 500 people at one time, and Paul makes this addition, most of whom are still alive. That is a challenge to his readers to go check this out. So powerful is that argument that now skeptics came up with the first, really, of their challenges to the resurrection of Jesus, and they said, this is, and I actually have read all kinds of, of writings on this, that the idea was all a hallucination that the followers of Jesus so desperately wanted to see him rise from the grave that they all hallucinated that they saw him. Well, that might happen with one or two. Could it happen with 11 frightened men that they might all share the same hallucination? And that kind of strains the bounds of credibility for me, but 500 at one time? 500 people hallucinating at the same time? For all you aging baby boomers, it probably happened at Woodstock. But there was a little assistance with that. Well, that one was too hard to sell. And so the primary idea that Jesus did not rise from the grave was that it was all a hoax, and it came down like this. The followers of Jesus wanted to promulgate his teachings. They were disappointed with his death. They didn't see it coming. And so what they did was they stole the body of Jesus, stashed it away somewhere, and said, he's back. And we see this in the Bible, that this was clearly what a, a lot of the intention was. They, there were the detractors of Jesus who went to Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea, Roman governor. And they said, sir, we just remember that liar announced while he was still alive, after three days I will be raised. We've got to get that tomb sealed till the third day. There's a good chance his disciples will come and steal the corpse and go around saying he's risen from the dead. Then we'll be worse off than before. Pilate told them, you have a guard. Go ahead, secure it the best you can. So they went out, secured the tomb, sealing the stone, posting guards. I find this really interesting on two levels. Number one, I find it a little bit humorous. This is the first time that 16 of the world's best fighting men would have to stand guard over a grave of a dead prophet to keep him from coming out. I find that just a little bit humorous. But what I find really interesting is that the detractors of Jesus wound up actually proving his resurrection by this very fact. They went to Pontius Pilate and asked for guards to make sure that his disciples did not come and steal him from the grave. Let's talk for a few moments about what was involved with that because we read that as 21st century Americans and we have a, we have a hard time pulling ourselves back into the first century and knowing exactly what, it, what went down there. Let me tell you about a Roman guard. Roman guard was 16 soldiers. And there were four shifts of four, and each shift of four served a three-hour engagement, guarding whatever it was they were to guard. And the way they would guard is that there would be four who would stay awake during their three hours, and they would stand guard at attention or at ease with their spears in their hands. In this case, since they were guarding a tomb, those four would have been across the mouth of the tomb. 
The other 12 were allowed to go to sleep. But you should understand sleep in this situation and position. They were in a semicircle with their heads facing in toward whatever it was that they were guarding, with their spears at their sides, so that if anybody tried to get past them, they would have to step over some of the most, some of the best finding men in the world, and they, of course, would wake them up. So you got four awake, 12 sleeping, but in a semicircle with their swords at their side, or spears at their side. Then on top of that, that the tomb was sealed. There was a um, stone that covered this kind of tomb. Scholars believe it weighed somewhere between one and a half and two tons. It was a round stone on a trench or on a track, so to speak. It is said that it took 10 men to roll this stone into place. And then a seal worked like this. There was the seal of Rome, and the seal involved the leader of that Roman group, that Roman guard. He would have to go in, make sure that what they were sealing was actually in there. In fact, the seal only meant something if they were, guard, if they were actually guarding what they claimed to be guarding. This guy would have gone in. He would have made sure that Jesus' body was in there. In this case, by this point, Jesus is wrapped up in 64 pounds of spices, the soldier would have made sure it was Jesus' body, that yes, indeed, he was there, and then they would roll the stone in place, and the seal worked like this. It was a long piece of twine, wax on either side, and the Roman seal in the middle signifying that whatever was supposed to be in there was in there. If it wasn't in there, the leader of that group would face death. And by the way, if the guys who were guarding the tomb of Jesus, if they were guarding anything in Rome, if they allowed that to get away or allowed it to be taken, they were subject to capital punishment. So, let's think for a moment about this idea that the disciples stole Jesus' body. I'm sure by this point you don't need me to walk you through this because you've seen everything I've seen. If these 11 frightened men whom we saw, they were in no condition, they were not in a good place when they were in frightened. But let's suppose that somewhere hiding in Jerusalem on the third day or on Saturday night, these 11 guys found some courage they clearly did not have at the crucifixion of Jesus, decided they were going to go to the tomb of Jesus, discovered there were 12 sleeping Roman soldiers with spears by their sides, four standing awake, guarding the mouth of a tomb, which now was covered by a two-ton stone. And the disciples say, we're just going to go in there and get him. They crawl over the sleeping soldiers, manage not to wake them up, move aside the soldiers who are awake, slide that big stone out of place. And here's the thing I find really interesting because later on, the grave wrappings of Jesus were found neatly folded in different places. So they would have had to unwrap the body of Jesus, still not waking up the soldiers. And what really is interesting to me that as soon as they unwrap the body of Jesus, 64 pounds of spices are gonna come blowing out the door of that grave. I wanna tell you, Paula Dean, if she were here, would tell you that would wake up Roman soldiers. And then drag the cold, dead body of Jesus out of there, out of the grave, and bury him. Well, that's not likely. But strange things have happened. I'm the first to tell you that there have been strange historical things. So let's just say for a moment, for argument's sake, let's say that these 11 frightened disciples of Jesus managed to crawl over the sleeping Roman soldiers break the seal of Rome, go past the four who were awake, move aside a two-ton stone, go in, unwrap the body of Jesus, spices blowing out everywhere, drag the body of Jesus out and bury it. Let's say for a moment they were able to pull that off. Well, that would take a faith that's bigger than my faith. But let's say it happened. Because now there is an even larger issue. 
Because these 11 men went all over the world telling everybody that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, the only reason for hiding his body was perhaps in the idea that they would somehow become some sort of religious rock stars, maybe gain some Jews, some power and influence. But if that was what they were hoping for, although they did have tremendous influence, they paid a horrific price for this communication that Jesus rose from the grave. History tells us that only one of the 11 died a natural death. Let me tell you what happened to them. James, the brother of John, was the first to die. He was fortunate, very fortunate. He was just beheaded. Acts chapter 12 records this. The message of Jesus became popular. Herod wanted to do something to please the crowd, so he executed James by beheading him. Peter was executed under the reign of Nero, and he was he was slated to be crucified. Well, with typical dramatic flair that Peter had, he just said he was not worthy to be crucified like Jesus, so he asked to be crucified upside down. Andrew was nearly beaten to death, then fastened to an X-shaped cross. It took him two days to die. See where I'm, see where I'm headed? Would you do that for a hoax? I mean, I'm thinking if I'm Andrew and it's taking me two days to die, sometime along that second day, I want to just say, just kidding. I was just kidding. Because all these guys were told, all you have to do is recant. All you have to do is say you did not see him. And the most material single fact was that they said Jesus rose from the grave. All they had to do is back away from that. You're telling me that this guy, Andrew, knew where the body of Jesus was stashed, and he was beaten nearly to death and hung and fastened to an X-shaped cross, taking two days to die for a hoax. Bartholomew went to India and was crucified upside down. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death in Jerusalem. Philip preached in eastern Turkey until he was crucified. Matthew was hacked to death with an axe in Ethiopia. Simon the Zealot, we talked about him last week, was crucified in Britannia. The only one to die a natural death was John. And the Romans tried to scald him with boiling oil. He survived that, so they exiled him to the mines of Patmos as an elderly man where he wrote the book of Revelation. As far as we know, John did die, if you can call it such, a natural death. Well, the questions are obvious. Number one, what was it that changed these timid chickens to bold individuals who would do anything to get across the message of the resurrection, who would pay any price? And then on top of that, you don't joyfully go to torturous death for a hoax. And it wasn't just these 11 men. There were hundreds of thousands of men and women in that first century and in fact, the history tells us they were covered in animal skins and thrown to lions and tigers for entertainment in the Colosseum. The Roman government crucified many Christians, lined roads for miles with crosses of Christians, men and women, and sometimes children and young people, because they believed in the resurrection. Nero especially, he, he got special fun out of taking Christian people, men, women, and children, dousing them with flammable fu fluid, putting them on staves and using them as human torches to light roads and light his palace. Now here's my point. There have always been religions where people died for a hoax, but not those first years, not that contemporaneous group who could check out the facts for themselves. Not that group. Well, for those who have been skeptical about the resurrection, 
Facts are stubborn things, and they have a way of backing people into a corner. And so through the years, those who are skeptical about the resurrection have sort of moved from one thing to the other. They've moved away from the hallucination thing. It doesn't make any sense. The idea that Jesus stole the body after a while, the facts just don't seem to bear that out. So I remember in the first half, not that I was alive, but in the first half of the 20th century, especially as many Protestant groups liberalized, there was a teaching that Jesus didn't really die because it was about all they were left with. They had to explain something, you know, I mean, he, he really, I mean, we can't prove he didn't, that he was hidden, he was, that they hallucinated. So the idea is he really didn't die. He went through all the tortures and the rigors of the cross, but somewhere, and I remember reading this when I was in college, as one guy built up this idea, he said that in the cool dampness of the grave, I remember that particular expression, in the cool dampness of the grave, he revived. Well, let's explore that for a moment. Because, I mean, if you think about how Jesus was crucified, first of all, the Romans didn't typically let people off the cross unless they were dead. And, you know, think about what he went through. He was beaten with a cat of nine tails to Isaiah, said he was unrecognizable. And then he was nailed to a cross, hung there for six hours, and then just to make sure he was dead, a Roman soldier threw a spear into his side and punctured his heart. Suppose, if you will, for a moment, that Jesus did manage to live through that, staggered out, and I don't know how he moved the two-ton stone, but staggered out. Can you imagine the shape he would be in and the idea that he's going to inspire 11 guys to take his message around the world? They would say, nope, he really didn't die. But there were actually ministers who denied the supernatural as churches liberalized, and I love this story. There was a guy, I think it was in Chicago, I'm not positive about that, but I think it was in Chicago, who went to a very liberal church, and on Easter, the minister told his audience that Jesus did not rise from the grave, and he gave them what was called, this is more than you want to know, the swoon theory. And so one parishioner wrote in, I think it was to the Sun-Times, one parishioner wrote in and said, my minister on Easter preached that Jesus did not really die, that he only swooned, and that's the story. And the journalist's answer to me is still classic. Here's what he said, quote, take your pastor, beat him with a cat of nine tails, pluck out his beard, force him to carry a cross, kneel him to the cross, let him hang all day, then take a sword and pierce it into his side till it hits his heart. Wait three days, see if your pastor's up and walking around. <laughs> Y'all don't think about that, please. Did he rise from the grave? One of the most interesting things in history is that so many skeptics and non-theists have set out to prove, to write the definitive work that he did not rise from the grave. And it's interesting how many, when they really began to explore the historical evidence, have switched the author of Ben-Hur as one. But perhaps the most notable of these is, is a British investigative journalist in the first part of the 20th century who set out as an non-theist to write the book that would once and for all debunk the idea that Christians hold to that Jesus rose from the grave. And he began to explore these evidences and others that Jesus did not rise from the grave only to find out that his mind was changing. And he wrote, I think, even though he didn't write it as a theologian, he wrote the best book on the resurrection of Jesus. Some of you perhaps have read it. It's called Who Moved the Stone? He wrote under the pen name Frank Morris. I'd like to just read to you a little bit about what he wrote in the preface of his book. Somehow the perspective shifted, not suddenly, as in a flash of insight or inspiration, but slowly, almost imperceptibly, by the very stubbornness of the facts themselves. There may be, and as the writer thinks, there certainly is a deep, profoundly historical basis for that much-disputed sentence in the Apostles' Creed, 
The third day he rose again from the dead. Does it matter? Did it happen? Before we leave this question, let's make sure we know what we're talking about when we say the resurrection happened. Because some people would say, well, Mark, I believe that Jesus continued on living. I don't really believe he came back in a body, but I think his spirit continued living. That is never in dispute, nor did it take three days. Because the Bible says in Luke 23, 46, Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. So Jesus never stopped living spiritually. That's not what's in play here. The Greek word resurrection is the word anastasis. It's two words. There's a prefix and there's a key word. The, the word anastasis means to stand again. It doesn't mean to float. It means to stand again. When the Bible says that Jesus rose from the grave, what it says is he came back in a body. He came back touchable. He came back tangible. He came back material. We believe that the first book chronologically that was written in the Bible is the book of Job. And although there was no Greek language yet and no word anastasis, it is interesting that Job singled this out in the depths of his depression with what he was going through. Job said, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand. See, he didn't know that the word would eventually mean to stand again, but he used that expression, that he will stand on the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. See, that's the concept of resurrection. After this body has decayed, yet I will have a body, and in my body I will continue to live. See, when Jesus rose from the grave and he appeared to his disciples, he freaked them out. Like you and me, they'd never seen this happen before. So what was Jesus? Was he an apparition? Was he a ghost? Was he a spirit? So listen to what Jesus said to them. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see it's really me. Touch me. And make sure I'm not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. So they're still not sure. Jesus said, look, 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 here's my hands, here's my feet. Touch me, hug me. And the disciples are there with their mouths open. Jesus said, look at this. He said, you got anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. Can you imagine that? Probably, probably no human being, being eating a piece of broiled fish has ever been as observed as Jesus was today. By the way, this is not for my talk today, but aren't you glad when we get to heaven we're going to eat? Isn't that cool? We'll talk about that some other day. All right. We've explored two questions. Does it matter? And the Bible says if it didn't happen, throw the Bible away. Did it happen? Well, I've given you historical analysis. But let's go to the large question today. Does it matter to you on April 8, 2012? And we're in the information age. We've watched the world change. Our world is filled with all kinds of exciting scientific and, and electronic advances. And we live surrounded by information. Does the resurrection of Jesus, does it make any difference to me today? Even if, let's just say, someone could say, Mark, I'll buy, I'll buy everything you brought up up to this point. I'll buy everything you brought up. But really, it doesn't really matter that much to me. Let's say it did happen. I got my marriage, I got my kids, I got my job, I got my relationships. I really just don't know that it's something that should occupy my thinking although that, although, that much, although I, I do find it significant that God has built in an idea of resurrection 
every 24 hours into our lives as we sleep and awake or annually as everything goes dormant only to come back in the spring. It is as if God has tried to get across to us the importance of this concept of resurrection. But fair question. Because I'm busy like you. The idea of the resurrection of Jesus, does it really matter to me today? Let's, let's enter a discussion for a moment. What does it take to get to heaven? You know, when I'm, when I'm flying or something by myself, um, I love talking to the person next to me. And you know, especially if you've got a long flight. And I try to keep back what I do for a living as long as I possibly can. And so finally, you know, someone will say, what do you do for a living? And I say, guess. And you know what? I don't think anybody's ever guessed minister. I don't know what I should think about that, but nobody's ever guessed it. <laughs> Lawyers, number one. Advertising, number two. But I really try to keep, keep back that for a long time because here's the thing. The moment people know you're a minister, just, it gets freaky, I promise you. And so when, once that discussion opens up, I'll ask the question, what do you think it takes to get to heaven? And here's the number one answer. It's number one of the hip parade. People say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm a pretty good person. In fact, I know that the non-theists here locally have actually put up a billboard that said it's possible to be good without God. And, and, and I don't get angry with that. I, I, I give them props for me. If they believe something, they ought to articulate it. But the question is, who decides what's good? What's good to you may not be good to me. And, and how can you be good enough? How, how would you know if being good enough, how would you know if you passed that threshold where you're suddenly in? The fact of the matter is, if we knew everything about each other, we probably wouldn't want to be around each other. Ah, that's a non-starter. Well, there are those that say, well, you have to be part of my religion. My religion's got a plan. In my religion, you have to go to classes, you have to learn facts, you have to jump through hoops, and if you do that successfully, then you're into heaven. But I don't read anything about this in heaven. Let, let me ask you a question. Do you think that the Bible would contain any information about how to get to heaven? Would you be interested in learning that there's only one thing required to go to heaven? Let's look at it. Romans 10.9 is well known as the most definitive salvation verse in the Bible. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, look at this, raised him from the dead. Did you know that is the one fact between you and eternal life? That God raised Jesus from the dead. So number one, is it an important fact to you? Number one, it is your key to everlasting life because the idea of Jesus being raised from the grave solidifies and verifies who Jesus Christ was, that he indeed was the Savior of the world. And he did die to pay for our sins. And it's verified by his resurrection from the grave. So number one, it's your key to everlasting life. And number two, that being the case, it means that death can't stop, and I have it in red, death can't stop you. Some people believe that when they come back, they'll come back as a frog or a squirrel or a feather or a breeze or whatever. No. Job said, look, after my body decays, in my body, I will see God. That means death cannot stop you. Let me take you down. If you've ever heard me preach a funeral, chances are you've heard me read from this scripture because I love it so much. We know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body. 
We will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Now that's a very important text to me because what the Bible says, this is sort of set up like a Mensa question. And we have it juxtaposed. We have the body that we live in that is called a tent. In contradistinction, the body that we will have when we get to heaven is called a permanent building. So you see, you know the difference between a tent and a permanent building. I don't mind camping for three days. I don't want to live in a tent. Now, I know that a lot of you are you know, 18, 20, 25 years old. You're ripped, you're buff, and you're thinking, man, I'm, I get, I'm, this, I'm, I'm great. I'm going to live in this body forever. Would you take it from some of us who have gotten a little bit older? There's going to come a time when you're not going to want to be in this body. <laughs> you guys are going to get a little thin on the roof. Your body start writing checks that can't cash. And, and it is interesting to me what, what we'll all do to keep looking younger. And there's nothing wrong with that. Good, 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 good. Do it as long as you can. This is a zero-sum game. It's a losing proposition because this is a tent. But here's the thing, and this is where we get so messed up because when somebody dies, we say, well, you know, we talk, and the, and the one that gets me the most is the Platonic idea. It comes from Plato. They still live in our heart. Dang, what do I get out of that if I die and I live in people's hearts? And living in people's hearts, let me ask you a question. How much do you know about your great, 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 great grandparents? They've quit living in, in people's hearts. I want a lot more than that. And I'm so thankful the Bible says that when we leave this tent, we have a permanent body that God has made for us that is superior. And then the Bible says we, this is in verse 2, we grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on heavenly bodies like new clothing. And now verse 5, if, if you ever ask me, Mark, what's the most underrated verse in the Bible in a heartbeat, I would tell you, 2 Corinthians 5, 5. It says, God himself has prepared us for this. The this there is the life to come. So get that in your mind for a moment. God has prepared us for the life to come. And as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. How many of us, life doesn't work out? By the way, we're in a series called Lifeline next week. And if your story feels like it's not working out, I can't wait till next week's talk because we're going to talk about how God has a bigger story and you're part of that story and God is at work in your life even if it doesn't feel like it. But somebody could say, Mark, there's so much injustice in my life and so many things don't work out. Where is God? Well, the reality is we were not made for this life. We were made for the life to come. As the great Christian scholar said, if I have desires that are not fulfilled in this world, then perhaps I was made for another world. And someday you and I are going to face death. But death, as the, as the great preacher preached in that wonderful work of literature, death ain't no big thing. Death cannot stop you. So what does the resurrection mean to you? Number one, it's your personal key to heaven. Number two, it means death can't stop you. And here's the third one. We haven't lost the people who have died believing in Christ. How does grief work for you? I can tell you how it works for me, and that's maybe it's just me. But you know, if you, if you have, and many of you have been through the loss of a loved one, a grandma, a grandpa, or a mom or dad, child, brother, sister. You know what it's like? You have the funeral, and the, uh, the details of planning a funeral keep you busy for a while. And you go through the funeral, and, and you hear things like this. Wow, she's holding up really well. Or, wow, he's handling this really well. And a lot of times what we're doing is we're just, we're just handling the details of a funeral. 
And that keeps us busy. And, it, and we find the energy and strength to go through the trauma of that event. But when everybody leaves, if someone said, you know, when, when, when someone passes, a grief counselor made this comment. He said, everybody is there at the beginning, and then it's like people go away. And, and this grief counselor said it's like getting 100 ice cream cones on one hot afternoon and then none. And some of you know exactly what that's like. But here's what I've experienced with grief is that I've been able to make it through the, the trauma of losing the person, but days and weeks and months after I lose that person, grief has a way out of hitting me out of nowhere. I can be driving my car and listening to a song. I can just be doing something, and I don't see it coming, and the next thing I know, it washes over me like when you're at the ocean and a wave hits you out of nowhere. Last year, and I, it's not right to say we lose someone because you can't lose someone if you know where they are, but we'll just go ahead and use it because it's culturally what we say. I lost one of the closest friends I've ever had in my life. He was a deacon here at New Spring. Many of you will know him as a long-serving Sedgwick County judge, Paul Clark. I can remember so many days going down to his courthouse, picking him up and us going to lunch, or he loved getting me in his pickup truck and taking this Texan to little towns in Kansas that Texans hadn't seen before, and introducing me to some country town judge, and we'd, we just enjoyed friendship. But most of all, we would go to lunch probably every month, and he would sit down and share what was burdening him, and if I had something that was burdening me, I could just say, Paul, I'm working through this. And those of you who were at New Spring and you watched Paul decline there was actually a point where I prayed, Lord, please take him home. I was in the backyard this week, and I was listening to a song, and all of a sudden it just washed over me. I couldn't pick up the phone. I, I, still have his, I still have his number on my phone. And I thought, wow. I, I looked at that, and I thought, I can't call him. He's not there. See, that's what losing someone does to us. They're gone. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ rewrites that narrative because it said, that's our personal key to everlasting life and death can't stop you. And if death can't stop you, it didn't stop those people. I mean, let's read this in 1 Corinthians 15 because you remember a few moments ago, we read a text that said the worst people off are the people who died believing in Jesus. They don't have time to change their worldview. Look at what it says right after that. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are gonna leave the cemeteries. I'd like to close with the story I've told more often than any other story in my life. I tell it probably every funeral I preach because it's such a huge impact on me. For years, in fact, I never flew till I was 35. I'm severe afraid of height, fear of height. I remember I was preaching in Toronto a few years ago, and they have something kind of like the Space Needle in Seattle, a very tall tower, except the, the floor of it is, I guess, plexiglass or some sort of acrylic, because it's, you can just walk out on it, you know, and look at the city below you. And that's what they were telling me. They said, we're gonna take you down to the tower downtown, and, and you can walk out on it, you can lie down on it. I said, no, I can't. <laughs> Honestly, I stayed in the coffee shop while they went up on the ground. You couldn't get me in the St. Louis Arch with a gun. But I started flying when I was 35, flown all over the world, so pretty much since then, but before that I didn't fly, and so whenever I was speaking at a conference or something, I would drive. I've driven all over the country speaking. 
And it was 1989, I was speaking at a conference, pastor's conference in Jacksonville, Florida, and I remember we were, we were driving, and I had this sort of male accomplishment thing going on, I was drive a little further, a little further, a little further, I want to drive as far as I possibly can, so I drove all day long. We wound up in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and, and when we were driving in, somehow I found out there was a, a national cemetery there, national park there, and my boys, Jonathan would have been eight, and Jared would have been six at the time, boys loved history, so we threw our belongings in the hotel room, raced out to the cemetery, but by this time, it was late in the day, and I realized I wasn't going to have much time left because the sign on the gate said it closed at sundown. So um, we scouted around, looked around for a few moments, but we, we had to leave pretty quick. We were driving out, I think it was the west entrance of the Vicksburg Cemetery. And part of this was getting a little fuzzy. I can't remember exactly what happened, but to my, to my memory, I looked out my driver's window, and there were two little tiny headstones about as far away from me as that monitor is as I was driving out. I stopped the car, and I looked, and they were the stones marking the graves of two children, a brother and a sister, who had passed in the year 1861 and had been buried three days apart. A little girl had been buried. She was three years old. She had been buried first, and three days later was her six-year-old brother buried. And I am one who likes to read messages on old tombstones because people had a way of putting triumphant messages on stones. So I read the girl's stone, and I don't remember what it said, but it was something hopeful. And then I read the boy's stone, and there were just three lines on it. No kisses fall upon the cheek. Those lips are stilled to me. Dear God, how could we give them up? And just the, the last statement there hit me really hard. I thought, I, I don't know what took the lives of these two children, to lose two children, three days apart. Was it an epidemic that swept through the community? Was it a tragic accident? What was it that took the lives of these two children? And the little girl and the family came out and they put hope on her stone. But on their little six-year-old boy's stone, they put three lines there that communicated their grief for succeeding generations to read. No kisses fall upon the cheek, those lips are still to me. Dear God, how could we give him up? I remember looking in the back seat of my car, and my son Jared was six at the time, and I thought, I cannot imagine what it would be like to lose Jared. And even though I could not gauge, I could not feel the depth of their grief, I could sync up with them so that a family would leave behind their pain for generations to read. No kisses fall upon the cheek, those lips are still to me. Dear God, how could we give him up? And, and I've told this story 500 times at least. But I still to this day do not know why I did it. It hit me so hard that I fell to my knees in front of the stone. And when I did, my knees pulled down a line of tall grass in that October evening that had concealed a fourth line. And what I read that day forever changed the way I look at death. Because the entire stanza read, No kisses fall upon the cheek, those lips are still to me. Dear God, how could we give him up? to anyone but thee. Do you know why it's important that Jesus rose from the grave? Because he's there to receive you when you go to the grave. Because he's there to receive your mom and your dad and your loved ones and your friends. What this family was saying is we don't want to lose our six-year-old, but we understand one thing very clearly. We have handed him over to the risen Son of God 
I make the case today that the Jesus rose from the grave is the most salient fact to your life and my life. It is your key to eternal life. It means death can't stop you, and you haven't lost the people you love who died in faith in Jesus Christ. A few moments ago, I asked you if you knew you were going to heaven, and you know the basis now. God desperately wants to have a relationship with you. You know what? Half that's already in place. God already knows you. Did you know that? He knows the number of hairs on your head, which in my case is always declining balance. (laughs) God already knows you. He knows what you love. He knows your heart. He knows your pain. He knows your joy. He knows you so well. He made you. But he wants you to know him. And you know what he did? He set the bar very low. He set the bar where you don't have to bring him anything. In fact, all that God asks is you give him the one thing he doesn't own. See, you're a free moral agent. You don't, wanna, you don't want somebody to love you who has to love you. So God gave you a free heart. So that when you basically say, Lord, I give you my confidence, I give you my trust, I give you the one thing that you don't own, then all of a sudden you enter into a relationship with the living Son of God that will never change. In fact, if you'd be willing to put your confidence in him today, that relationship could start within seconds and nothing could ever take it away. Not even your misbehavior or mine. Because Lord knows I can't be perfect for one day. Would you be open to that? I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but these are words that just reach out to Jesus. And really, God's just looking for your trust. He's looking for your confidence in Jesus. I'll pray it slowly because I want you to mean it. That's the important thing. Here we go. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you died for me on the cross. And I believe you rose from the grave. I put my confidence in you, and I accept you as my Savior and my King. In Jesus' name, amen.